Today we're going to start a message series, just a three-part message series. We could actually keep this one going forever because there's so many um, interesting Bible verses that would fit with this, but at the moment I'm trying to keep it to three parts. And I've called this series Misunderstood Messages. And what we're going to do is each week we're going to look at some Bible verses, three in particular each week. Hopefully I can get through all three. It all depends on whether you go off down a rabbit trail or something like that and use up all of my time and I might only get through two of them. But I have three set aside for each week, three Bible verses, not obscure Bible verses, not unknown ones, but Bible verses that tend to be very well known and tend to be quoted a lot. But it seems to me that they're very often quoted out of context or misunderstood. And so I want to look at these misunderstood messages from the Bible. And um, as we look at them today, as we look at the verses we're going to look at today, I just want to set a couple of things. I want to set some groundwork for all of this. First of all... um, when, when you see something in the Bible in a passage that you've never seen before, when your eyes have been opened a little bit wider and you see something, you see more to it than you saw before, that doesn't mean you need to trash what you saw before. Or if If I show you what a verse means today and I show you what it means in context and then next week you hear another preacher or teacher quote that verse and quote it out of context, that doesn't mean you need to close the door of your mind and say, he's wrong. My pastor's right and your pastor's wrong. My pastor could beat your pastor up anytime. (laughs) That's not what we're talking about. Okay, and we're, so I, one of the things I want to make clear is when I show you things in the scriptures that very often Christians misunderstand, it's not for the purpose of being puffed up with pride and knowing more than other people and then having theological debates where we correct everybody. That's not where it is. What I'm saying is you may have just opened the door this wide before and you see a little bit of light. There may be some truth to the way you've understood that scripture before. It's just not the full truth. And what I want you to do is I want to open up the door in these Bible verses a little bit wider so that you can see into the room that it's revealing a little bit more. And you can say, ah, there's more in that room than I realized. If you keep that positive approach rather than, okay, now I've changed my mind from this opinion to this opinion, and I'm going to be dogmatic about it. If you do that, then next year, you might hear a different preacher or teacher talk about those verses, and they might have some insights into those verses that I don't have and that I'm not sharing today. So you don't have to reject that and say, well, my pastor said this and he didn't say. You can say, well, I used to see that much in the door. And then I came to church and I heard a message series called Misunderstood Messages. 
and it opened the door wider, but as I journey through life and I, I hear more, it may just open the door wider and wider. Make Scripture a lifelong journey of discovery. Always be open to, for God to reveal more than you saw before. And that was what the whole message series, Eyes Wide Open, was about. And this kind of follows on to the back of it a little bit quite well. So today we're looking at some misunderstood messages about life and faith. And I want to start with a very well-known scripture verse. And let's look at the misunderstood message. Very often this verse of scripture is quoted or, or paraphrased like this. This is the way people always often say it. The devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came to give us life. We'll look at the verse in a minute, but this is just part of it at the moment. People will say the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And every time something negative happens in your life, people can paraphrase or misquote that verse and say, well, well, that wasn't, God, that wasn't God's will for your life, and maybe it wasn't. Uh, that was the devil. The devil came to steal, kill, and destroy. And very often the devil gets blamed for things that before you were a Christian, you just thought were normal things in life, you know, like you got a flat tire, and people get flat tires, and when you get a flat tire, you have to change the tire. But now you're a Christian and you've super spiritualized everything. And it was the devil who gave you a flat tire to make you lay on the way to church. That was what it was all about. You see, the devil's trying to stop you coming to church. Well, it's almost like since becoming a Christian, you're more pathetic than you were before. I mean, that's what it sounds like. I used to be able to cope with life, and when troubles came my way, I just had to go on with it and fix them, but now I'm going to blame everything on the devil. Now, sometimes things happen in our life which do feel like an absolute onslaught of evil against us. I realize that. But flat tires, being late for work, making a stupid financial decision, um, falling for a scam on the foot. None of that was the devil. That was a lack of wisdom. And anyway, this verse, there may be a partial truth to it that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but that's only opening the door a little bit widely. That's not opening it wider so that we see how that happens because once you know how that happens, you're not going to blame every circumstance in your life on the devil, you know? It's like the devil's got a lot of work on his hand, but little Jeannie Brown who lives in Edmonton, I'm really after her, you know? He probably doesn't even know you exist, Jeannie Brown in Edmonton. And, and so... I think the problem with this misquote of a Bible verse is it gives us the wrong impression. It gives us the impression that we are helpless victims that can be attacked at any time by the devil and there's nothing we can do about it. So let's look at what the verse actually says. It's Jesus speaking and it's John 10.10 10, and Jesus says the thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. 
I have come in order that you might have life, life in all of its fullness. So Jesus here in this verse is contrasting two people and two life experiences. The thief and himself are the two people. The being robbed from, you know, steal, kill, and destroy is contrasted with living life in all of its fullness. So what we need to do is we need to identify who the thief is in this passage. Because when we just take that one verse out of context, people say, well, the thief must be the devil. So the devil comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus came that we might have an abundant life. But is that the thief in this passage? Because if we don't know who the thief is, then we won't recognize the thief when they come. You know, when a thief comes to your house, it's not like one of these cartoon animations. He's not dressed up like a thief with a swag bag and a little mask over his eyes, you know? He probably comes pretending that he's um, doing a survey in the area or something like that. And so you need to know how to recognize the thief. Now, sometimes when people think the thief is the devil, and they will say the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy, there's another verse in the Bible that says that when you catch a thief, he has to pay you back seven times what he stole. And so sometimes people will say, oh, you know, someone will say, oh, my car it got totaled. That was the devil. He was trying to steal your car. He needs to give you back a car seven times the value because when a thief gets caught, he has to pay back seven times. It's a verse from the book of Proverbs. Let's look and see if it actually says that. Excuses might be made, might be found for a thief who steals because he is starving, but if he is caught, he must pay back seven times what he stole, even if he has to sell everything in his house. Does that sound like it's about the devil? I mean, is the devil sitting in his house saying, oh, I could really do with a KFC right now. I'm hungry. I'm starving. I'm going to go and steal something. This is about a human being. So let's go back to what Jesus said in John 10 and let's read it in context. Jesus said again, I am telling you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. I'm going to explain what the gate means in a minute because in this passage, Jesus says he is both the shepherd of the sheep and the gate of the sheep. And we don't understand that in our culture. So we'll look at it in a minute. I am the gate for the sheep. Now look at this. All others who came before me were thieves and robbers. Does it say the devil? This is not a trick question. You're, I'm allowed audience. Does it say the devil's a thief and a robber? All others who came before me all other what? All other messiahs, all other religious leaders, all of the people who had been teaching the people and leading them astray, because before the time of Jesus, there were false messiahs that arose and declared themselves to be the Messiah and said to everybody, grab a sword and follow me. I'm the Messiah. We're going to kill the Romans. But they all get killed. And then there was the religious leaders who were in charge at the time who were always opposing Jesus. They had established their religious doctrines before Jesus came and they didn't like Jesus when he came. And we'll look at them in a moment. 
all others who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep, God's flock, the people who follow the Lord, who follow the good shepherd, did not listen to them. I am the gate. Those who come in by me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. What thief? The thief that he just mentioned. All the other religious people that had come before him comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come in order that you might have life and have it in all of its fullness. You know, see if we were to to read this entire passage. Um, Yeah, in fact, I think I've got, yeah, let's go on. Let's just read on a moment. I am the good shepherd. So there's two I ams. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd who is willing to die for the sheep when a hired man, or some translations say a hireling, when a hired man who is not a shepherd and does not own the sheep sees a wolf coming, people, we have got three characters here. We have got a thief, we've got a hireling, and we've got a wolf. The thief, Jesus said, are the religious leaders who teach things that try to steal from you the great life that God's got for you. There are lots of religious teachers like that. There are cults, and there are false messiahs, and false prophets, and gurus, and all that kind of stuff. There always have been. And very often, and even in the Christian church, there are people who are thieves, who will steal, kill, and destroy. Even within the Christian church, many times there have been charlatans, or there have been people that have brought in false teachings that will try to lead you away from faith in Christ, or will try to make your Christian faith so complicated that no matter how hard you try, you can never live up to it. Or they'll give you a list of legalistic rules and regulations that you could never keep. Or they'll tell you that the world is so sinful and evil, uh, that the only good things are spiritual things, and you need to remove yourself from the world and like go and hide in a commune or a monastery or get thee to a nunnery or something like that. That was a Shakespeare quote, only one person got it. But anyway, and um, uh, so you should read Shakespeare more, people. And, um, you know, we need to withdraw from the world and be super spiritual all the time and never live a real life. Anybody who who teaches things or who coerces you with religion and with legalism or or with weird super spirituality into not living a fully human life is robbing you of what God God created you for. So that's thieves. They come to steal your joy. You shouldn't be happy. You should be serious all the time. The world's a sinful place, don't you know? In fact, you're a sinful person. What are you happy for? You should be ashamed of yourself. 
that kind of stuff. Or, um, oh, the world's so evil. Oh, it's so demonic. You, you, you just hide yourself in the church all the time. Do you notice they didn't just go, the sheep don't just go into the pen, they go in and they go out and they find pasture. They're living a full life. So those are the thieves who come to steal. Then there are the hirelings, the hired man. The people who, they're doing a job of, of religious or spiritual leadership, but they're not really called. Their hearts aren't in it. They will quit as soon as the going gets tough. They'll throw in the towel and they'll quit. And, and then there's the wolves. The hireling runs away, and so the wolf snatches the sheep and scatters them. The hired man runs away because he is only a hired man and does not care about the sheep. Let me just tell you a couple of illustrations, one about a wolf and one about a hireling. Um, First of all, it's interesting. The hireling is obviously people who are teaching, but teaching you, you know, false information. I think of cult leaders and, and religious extremists and things like that. But the wolf, whenever you read Jesus talking about people being wolves, he always refers to them as wolves in sheep's clothing, not wolves in shepherd's clothing. Isn't that interesting? The bad shepherds are the hirelings and the thieves. But there's also wolves in sheep's clothing. Sometimes just individual people, not people on a platform, not people teaching the, the word, can cause trouble, can lead Christians astray and so on. I remember many, many years ago when I was in the UK, I was leading a church and it was growing and we had a growing leadership team and we had got together over a period of months as a leadership team and we were praying and we were seeking God about what the next steps for the church were and it became absolutely clear that what we were supposed to do is to start um, a system of small groups because we had so many new people in the church that we didn't know and all of that kind of thing and we wanted to start small groups and so we began to implement it. There was this woman who came to the church, never said a word. A little bit strange I always felt, but she came to the church, she was there every week, never said a word. She sent us this letter, it was like a six page handwritten letter and it contained a prophecy from the Lord in which she continually referred to herself as a prophet. Like she'd never spoken a word before, but now she was a prophet. And this prophecy was to warn us that God was telling the leadership team he did not want us to have small groups in the church. And if we had small groups in the church, we were disobeying him. But we had been praying for three months about it, and we felt that we should. And so we read this letter, and it's like, I mean, it was really strongly worded and kind of weird. So what did we do about it? So we talked about it, we thought about it, we prayed about it, and we sent her back a very nicely worded letter saying, thank you for that message that you felt came from God. At this time, we do feel that we should do small groups, and, and, but we're going to keep your letter on the file just in case we want to refer to it in the future. Yeah, the, the, that file. But anyway. Um, well, she sent another letter. Like a really, really angry one. 
You will all be judged by God, but your blood is on your own hands. I'm free from it because I warned you, I will never be back to the church. She never came back, but she kept on the phone to every person in the church that she felt was weak or was easily influenced or to tell them that we were disobeying God and try to scatter the flock. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Here's another story. I forgive her and bless her and all that. I'm just telling you it for the point of illustration, not because I still have an issue with it, okay? Now, many of you will know, most of you will know that that when I was younger, I was married, my first marriage broke up, my wife left, and, and my, I was devastated, and all of that kind of stuff. And I was a young pastor at the time, and I had to take a sabbatical, um, and the assistant pastor stood in, and our apostolic leader was helping me and counseling me through this, and all of that kind of stuff. Now, there was another church that had started not far away from us, and uh, actually it was, it was pretty far away, but anyway, and, um, but some of the people in that church had visited our church for conferences and so on, and here's what I, but they were new, they were a newer church and they needed members. I discovered that the pastor of that church had been visiting people in my church and telling them that because my marriage had broken up, they had to leave my church and join his church, or the spirit, here it is, the spirit of divorce that was upon me would come upon them. So me and the worship pastor got in our car and drove down there to meet him. First of all, we denied it. Then he got really arrogant and said, you're just insecure because I've got a heavier anointing upon my life than you've got on your life. So we decided to leave. We got in the car and left. Three months later, he had an affair with his secretary. His marriage broke up and he was out of the ministry. I mean, people, God has called us to live a holy life. I don't want to put shame on people when we blow it, when we make, make mistakes, we can be forgiven, but let's not be so arrogant that we think we can judge other people, we can spout off about other people, because whatever you sow, you will reap in life. Hirelings, wolves, thieves, look, I am the good shepherd. As the Father knows me and I know the Father in the same way I know my sheep and they know me and I am willing to die for them. There are other sheep which belong to me that are not in this sheep pen. I must go and bring them too and they will listen to my voice and they will become one flock and one shepherd. Here is how shepherds worked in the ancient Near East. Up in the hills in the fields, they would build a sheep pen Let's say this was a sheep pen here. They would build up walls and it would have a gate, a doorway into it, but they wouldn't build a gate. They wouldn't put a gate in. What would happen would be all of the shepherds would meet up together and they would, they would take turns each night. So, okay, tonight is my turn to be the gate and all of the sheep would go into the pen and the shepherds could go away and then the shepherd whose turn it was to be the gate would sleep 
lying across this doorway so the sheep can't get past him and the wolves can't get past him and the sheep are in the pen. So Jesus is saying, I am the gate. I am the shepherd and I am the gate. I lie upon the entrance to the sheep pen, the church, the kingdom of God, however you want to understand it, and I move out the road and let my sheep come in. They come in to the church, they have rest, they meet with the other sheep, but they don't just hide in the sheep pen all the time. They also go out into the pastures and and they eat the, 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 the grass, and they produce milk, and they produce wool, and they produce lambs. And he's saying, that's who I am. I am the shepherd in the gate. Do you know who you are? You're the sheep. I want to usher you into my kingdom. I want, to, I want you to be part of the church. I want you to be part of the flock. Don't let wolves pull you out. Don't let people teach you things that are strange. Be part of the flock. But don't just live your whole life in the church. I I came that you might have life and have it to the full. I will also lead you out of church, out into the world, where you will live a great life, where you will live life to the full, where you will enjoy the abundance of all creation. A great career, a great family, great hobbies, a great life in every way. Jesus came that we might have life in abundance. Uh, skip the Ezekiel verse and just go to the message of John 10. Here is the message. False messiahs and religious teachers who try to lead you away from Christ or who teach you against living life to the full and enjoying all of God's blessings and all of God's abundance, they're stealing the blessings of God from you. Jesus came to ensure that you would enjoy God's blessings and the gift of life. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Next verse. Next one, which is, it, it, it's the same as a stealing from you one. Money is the root of all evil. Quite often, this is usually said with a jealous attitude by a Christian who's going through a hard time financially about that family in the church that just drove up in their Maserati. <laughs> Look at them, Christians. Money is the root of all evil. Which is not what the Bible says. Can you tell me what it says? The love of money is the root of all evil. And in fact, in context, as we'll see in a minute, you could actually say the lack of money because the people it is speaking about, as we will see, are people who are lacking money and have become so obsessed with it, they have now put their focus on it. The lack of money is a root of all kind. More people steal because they don't have money than because they do. Okay? If you've ever been mugged, it was probably by somebody who didn't have money. Not by a millionaire. Let's have a look at what it says. Let's have a look. For the love of money is a source of all kinds of evil. Some people commit murder for money. Some people commit theft for money. Some people lie for money. All kinds of evil, right? Now, let's read it in context. Some have been so eager to have it that they have wandered away from the faith and have broken their hearts with many sorrows. Now, 
this is talking, this, when it's talking about the love of money can lead to all kinds of evils, it's talking about people who have abandoned their principles, their values, godly thinking, and have strayed away from the faith in a hunger to get money any way they can. And you know what happens? They break their own hearts with many sorrows. Let's look at what it says in the book of Proverbs. It says this, if a bird sees a trap being set, it knows to stay away. But these people, greedy people it's talking about, set an ambush for themselves. They are trying to get themselves killed. Such is the fate of all who are greedy for money. It robs them of life. This is not talking about whether you have money in your hand or don't have money in your hand. That is neutral. This is talking about what you have in your heart. That's what it's talking about. Let's look at another verse, also Proverbs. And it says this, take a lesson from the the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering their food for winter. But you lazy bones, how long will you sleep? When will you, this is a great verse for teenagers in the morning. (laughs) When will you wake up? A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit. Scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. Those two verses that we've looked at from Proverbs says this, people who are eager to get rich any way they can will destroy their own life and fall into a trap. But those who have a healthy work ethic will get up in the morning and will build wealth in a godly manner. It's a a question of attitudes. Let's go back to 1 Timothy again and read this passage in its proper context. Look at this. Those who crave riches, right? Those who crave riches fall into temptation and are caught in the trap of many foolish and harmful desires which pull them down to their own ruin and destruction. It almost sounds like Paul is quoting that verse from Proverbs that we just read. For the love of money is a source of all kinds of evil. Some have been so eager for it, that they have wandered away from the faith and have broken their hearts with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, avoid these things. So at this point, and go and read it yourself sometime, he's talking to Timothy, who is the pastor of the church at Ephesus, and he's saying, Timothy, in your church, you've got people in different financial situations. Some people have a scarcity of money. Now, make sure those people do not become so focused and obsessed with getting money that they are willing to give up their values, their beliefs, and wander away from the faith and do things that they shouldn't do. For the love of money, when you don't have any, the lack of money can lead to all kinds of evil. 
Then he goes on, that's one group of people. Then he goes on and talks about the people in the church who do have money. Look what he says. Command those who are rich in the things of this life not to be proud, but to place their hope not in such uncertain thing as riches, but in God, who is a stingy miser and doesn't want you to enjoy life at all. Is that what it says? But in God, read it with me, who generously gives us everything for our enjoyment, life in all of its fullness. God has given you Worship music to enjoy, prayer to enjoy, scripture to enjoy, Netflix to enjoy, uh, Shiraz to enjoy, McDonald's to enjoy, whatever it is. Not just spiritual things, but everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous to share with others and make sure they tithe and give in the offering every week. <laughs> Do you see how it's talking about two groups of people, those who are struggling financially and those who have plenty financially? And it says to both of them, keep your attitudes right and keep your faith in God. Here is the actual message. Put it up. The message is this. Those who are struggling financially... Don't become so focused on getting money that it becomes an unhealthy obsession and leads, to, leads you to make foolish decisions. And those who have money, don't let it make you arrogant or lacking in faith. And everyone, be grateful to God, be generous with what God has given you, and enjoy all of God's gifts. And everybody said? Okay, one more verse, and I've only got two minutes to do this one, and so we'll fly through it. Here is the misunderstood message. God would rather you were unsaved than unenthusiastic. Look at you. Look at how unenthusiastic you are. I mean, you should be holy rollers, and you should be doing cartwheels over the pews. If you're not that enthusiastic, you may as well not be saved. And usually this message comes from this verse in the book of Revelation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot, cold, nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, that's quite strong language, isn't it? <laughs> so we need to know what it is talking about. This verse is very often used, people misunderstand it, and they think that being hot means you're an on-fire Christian, you're a passionate Christian, you're a Bible-thumping, pain-in-the-neck Christian, right? <laughs> and being cold means you're not a Christian at all, and being lukewarm means you're a half-baked Christian, and usually people take this to mean, well, make up your mind. Either get passionate for God or live for the devil, but don't be in the middle. That's usually the way they say it. Which is not what this verse says at all, actually. And when I hear that, it often reminds me of, you know that TV show, I think, what's it called? Knockout or Knockdown? Or, you know that thing where they do all these? Uh, wipe out, wipe out. 
Because I've, I've only ever seen little clips of it, but I saw it once and the people were having to climb, they had to climb up on this wall and then they had to climb up right along to the other side. But right in the middle, there was this giant boxing glove that would come out. And, and so the goal was to get from this side to that side without being punched by the boxing glove. And as soon as I saw that, I thought of this Bible verse. And I thought, that's how many people think. They think, okay, I've started the Christian life. I'm just a baby Christian. I've just started to believe. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like cold. It's all new to me. And I've got to get to the passionate side as quickly as possible. But I, to get from cold to hot, I'm going to need to go through lukewarm. But I need to go through there as quick as possible. Boom, not too late. Jesus spat me out of his mouth. <laughs> That's not what this verse means. If you read it in context, Jesus was writing to the Christians who lived in a city called Laodicea. And he is using something that they were very familiar with as an illustration, right? The city of Laodicea was famous for having lukewarm water. And I'll tell you why. Do you want to put the next image up? So there's Laodicea, Hierapolis and Colossae. See Hierapolis and Colossae? They were also famous as well. Hierapolis was a famous place for hot mineral springs. And, and lots of tourists would travel to Hierapolis to go to the hot mineral springs because there were healing properties and you could sit in there and get your aches and pains and your joints healed up and your skin conditions, you know, all that sulfury water and so on. Skin, and, and people, tourists used to go there all the time for the healing properties. But to travel there, to travel there, it was, if you, that, that's modern day Turkey. If you've, I've been and seen these places. If you've ever been, you know, it is very, very hot and very dry. And tourists going to Hierapolis used to, um, it was a weary journey. So they used to stop off at Colossae, where there were pools of ice-cold, refreshing water. They would stop there on the way, and they would drink these pools of ice-cold, refreshing water, and then they would travel on to Hierapolis, and they would enjoy the hot springs, and then on the way back, they would enjoy the cool water. But Laodicea had its water piped from Hierapolis, and but the, I think it was five kilometers away. And by the time it got there, this hot spring water had become lukewarm. It was also sulfur water. And every time visitors arrived at Laodicea, it was common that the first time they took them, my goodness! Oh, it's the, it's the water from Hierapolis. We get it piped here. And people would spit it out. Put next image up, please. There are the hot mineral springs there that people would go and sit in. Next one. Next image. There's the cool water where you could go and refresh yourself. Next image. There's the pipes that were built. There are the remainder of the pipes that were built all the way to Laodicea. I might have one more. Do I have one more image? Is that my last image? I take it that means that's my last image. Okay. <laughs> um, and so the hot springs, 
The hot springs brought healing to people. The cold water brought refreshment to people. And what God was saying to the church at Laodicea, he was using something they were familiar with as an object lesson and saying, church, you're supposed to be bringing healing to people who are broken. And you're supposed to be bringing cool spiritual refreshment to people who are weary through the journey through life. But you're not doing any. You're just like the water that gets piped into your city. So here's the full message. Want to put the next slide up? Here is the message. God wants his people to be a blessing and a benefit to the world. To bring spiritual refreshing and to bring healing comfort to those journeying through life. God does not want his people to be bland or to be distasteful. Do you see that all three of these verses that are very often used to criticize or correct people actually have a positive and encouraging and life-affirming message in them? The Bible was given to encourage and to affirm our lives. It was not given so that we could become very complicated in what we think God wants for us or so we could criticize, correct, and judge others or so we can constantly be doubting, am I doing the right thing or doing the wrong thing? The good news is God loves you. He is for you and not against you. And the Bible says, if God be for us, then who or what could ever be against us? He's on your side. He's got your back. He forgives. He heals. He restores and he guides. God is a good God. And the Bible is a good book. Can we stand up together, people? We're going to say a prayer together. It's based on the book of Ephesians. It's a verse asking God to open our eyes wider to see more of his goodness and to fill our lives with more of his blessing. So let's lift up our hands to heaven and let's say this prayer together. Let's go. Father God, today I ask you, give me spiritual wisdom and insight so that I may grow in my knowledge of God. Open the eyes of my heart and flood them with light. May Christ dwell fully within me. May my roots go down deep into God's love. May my life be grounded in you. And may I be filled to overflowing with all the fullness of God. Be glorified in my life through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.